You are listening to the Biz Rock Podcast with Dr. Vince Bantu and sponsored by the Jude 3 Project. We are so thankful for those who support the mission and vision of the Jude 3 Project to help us produce content such as the Biz Rock Podcast. If you would like to become a monthly partner or a one-time giver, you could do so by going to jude3project.org and hitting that donate tab. You can either give by mail or give online. Thank you so much to our supporters. We appreciate you and we hope you enjoy today's episode. Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to the Jude 3 Project. Uh, My name is Vince Bantu, and it is a pleasure uh, and a blessing to be able to welcome you to a special ministry uh, and podcast of the Jude 3 Project entitled The Bisrot. The, the word bisrat is actually an ancient East African word in various languages that means the gospel, the good news. And this was a term that various East African Christians in antiquity and today used to reflect the good news of Jesus Christ and have been using for a long time. And we know that at Jude 3, we are centered around the gospel and proclaiming the good news and also equipping uh, the body of Christ and also the black church and black community to, to be able to proclaim the bisrat uh, or the good news. Uh, to our community in particular, and to equip the body uh, to really be able to engage questions that are uh, prevalent in our community and maybe even objections or just concerns people have about the BISROT, uh, especially in uh, the black context. And so this podcast uh, called The BISROT will have a special focus on early African Christianity. So the BISROT podcast, uh, which is a part of the Jude 3 Project, is all about early African Christianity. And every week we're going to have um, a mixture of lectures, which is this episode, and also we will have some interviews and some conversations with other scholars uh, where myself and other scholars will be able to engage specific questions that are uh, really prominent in the black community, especially with proclaiming the Bisrat uh, in our context in with other religious communities and, and ideologies. And so um, today is actually the first of four lectures where I will just be sharing uh, some resources and some surveys about early African Christianity that will help to really set the stage for uh, just a general, basically church history survey uh, in Africa before the modern period or before slavery. And the reason that we are gonna be looking at African Christianity before colonialism is precisely because of of one of the most common objections that Christianity only entered into the lives of black people through slavery and colonialism. And that's why we are focusing on the presence of the the Bisrot among African peoples before that time period to show that the Bisrot has been present among African peoples from the get-go. And we're gonna be, each of these four lecture episodes uh, or kind of mini lectures or surveys are gonna be focused on the four major areas of Christianity in the African continent uh, prior to colonialism. And one thing that's interesting as we, uh, and, and very encouraging as we proclaim the Bisrot in our community is that when you look at ancient African history, just even apart from Christianity, just African civilizations, uh, especially in the first millennium, like in the first, uh, in in late antiquity or the early medieval period. Um, When you look at Africa, the continent that we now call Africa in that time period, and when you look at Christianity, you're looking at the same thing. Or another way of saying that is in order to study ancient African Christianity uh, or ancient African history is to study African Christianity. 
Uh, what I'm trying to say is that Christianity was prevalent and eventually predominant in all of the earliest African civilizations. Um, and, and, and so it wasn't just present as a minority, but eventually became the majority religion. And that was a free decision. It was not colonized. It was not imposed. It was not uh, uh, forced upon Africans. In fact, many times, as we're going to even see today, African people themselves were the ones standing up for the Bisrat, even to, to their own persecution and even sometimes death. And many times it was at the hands of Europeans. Um, and so the four major ancient civilizations of Africa in the early church were primarily what's called North Africa, which is what we're going to talk about today, uh, and then Egypt, and then Nubia, and then Ethiopia, or what was called Axum. So North Africa, Egypt, Nubia, and Ethiopia. And we're going to talk about a survey of what, how the Bisrat entered into and grew in those four areas in these four uh, mini lectures in this Bisrat podcast. And today, we are going to start off with talking about North Africa. So North Africa, in the ancient context, was, um, was a bit different than it is today. Uh, when we talk about North Africa in a church history context, that correlates to the modern nations of Libya and Tunisia and Algeria and Morocco. And really, uh, um, the main center of that, though, is what we now call Tunisia, which was an ancient city named Carthage. And so Carthage was a massive city um, that was uh, that when it became part of the Roman Empire was actually second only to Rome in terms of its size and its presence in the Mediterranean economy. Um, but actually, uh, if you look at what um, North Africa would have looked like in the in the modern period, I've already listed the modern nations that that they're known by. And then even if you were to go back to like the early church, for example, in the first, second, third centuries, well, at that time period what we now call North Africa was actually a colony or had actually become colonized by the Roman Empire. Um, and, and, they, and the names of them were, were different. There was different, they were basically Roman provinces or Roman colonia or colonies. And you had, for example, in modern Libya, that was a colony known as Byzantina. And then you also had what's called in Tunisia or around Carthage, which was the major city of North Africa, was a region known as Africa Proconsularis. And then you also had Numidia and Mauritania, and uh, even uh, there were two different Numidias and two different Mauritanias. And so there was about seven or so Roman provinces in the, uh, in, in the time right before Christianity and during the early church. But if we go back even further to start off the story, even before Christianity came into North Africa or even before the life and ministry of Jesus, um, if we look at the map in that time period, it actually looks very different. And as you see right here, there were really originally four uh, kingdoms in North Africa that were unique and indigenous to North Africa before they became Roman colonies. And those four kingdoms were going from west to east, Mauritania, far to the west, which would have been partly in Morocco and in Algeria, and then you, all, then you would have had the moving east, you would have had the kingdom known as Masasili. Then moving further east, uh, then you would have had the kingdom known as Masili. And then finally, uh, to the furthest east uh, in, in Carthage, that was the kingdom of Carthage, right? Now, if we were to rewind the clock, the clock even further, the Carthaginian kingdom actually themselves um, were indigenous North Africans, unlike the Romans, again, who colonized North Africa later. But they actually even themselves migrated and brought a distinct culture from the Near East going back really far, like back to the 10th century B.C. 
And so if you go back to the 10th century, that was actually when the Phoenicians that are mentioned in Scripture, who were from the Near East, uh, you know, from the area near modern Lebanon and Palestine, uh, the Phoenicians, some of them actually migrated over into Carthage, and they actually created a Phoenician civilization that was later known as Punic. So if you've ever heard the word Punic before, even the word Punic is related to the word Phoenician, similar letters. And so... They, the Carthaginian kingdom was settled uh, a thousand years before Christianity by Phoenicians who came to modern-day Tunisia and built the city of Carthage. And they, they were North Africans, but they were also culturally distinct from the indigenous North Africans who had been there even before the Punics. And so these are the people that are properly known as Imazilin. And Imazilin are, is the modern name that these people groups, native North Africans, uh, still go by. Now, you might know them by their colonial name uh, that has been put upon them, and you'll often, more often see in scholarship, which is the word Berber. But I want to encourage you to stop using that word because that is a, an, a Western and a Roman imposition put upon them that is, even in scholarship is used to refer to the native indigenous North Africans. Uh, so you will hear the word Berber, but I would encourage you to use their own name that they still today use for themselves, which is Imaz. Zealand. And so in North Africa, you had originally you had two cultures that were living side by side and, and to many degree, to a large extent influenced one another. They traded with one another. Um, they lived next door to each other. But at the same time, they were distinct. And so, again, Carthage was the territory of the Punics and they spoke the Punic language and they had different, slightly different gods and goddesses and slightly different culture, different kingdom. And then the kingdoms of Masili, Masasili and Mauritania, these were the indigenous North Africans that, that spoke the Imazilan language and they were themselves Imazilan. Now, the kingdoms of Masasili and Masili in the third century BC united and they became known as the kingdom of Numidia. You might have heard the name Numidia before, and that actually happened uh, in the midst of when uh, the Romans began to come into and, and, be, and create or colonize and absorb these various North African regions, which was a process that took a few centuries and by the time of Christianity had become complete. But what had happened was the, um, the, the Numidians uh, under King Masinissa, who is known as like one of the most famous uh, North African kings in history, uh, was actually teaming up with another, uh, with another leader in Carthage known as uh, Syphax. And they were actually engaging with warfare with the Romans, who at this time in the third century were not the power that they would have been in the, you know, after the time of Julius Caesar and in the time of Christianity. But what had happened was Masinissa, who was the king of a united Numidia, who brought together Masasili and Masili, had actually switched sides and joined with the Romans against Cephax and actually fought against the Carthaginians um, and helped to defeat them. And in return, he uh, was promised uh, to be supported by the Roman Empire. But essentially what happened was he just, Numidia became what's known as a client kingdom of the Roman Empire. So this was one of the first examples, uh, probably in history, of Europeans coming into Africa and doing the divide and conquer game. And uh, in exchange for uh, resources, Africans turning against each other uh, and then that resulting ultimately in the colonization of Africa. And so that, that continued to happen in Numidia and as well as Carthage as Rome eventually became victorious in the Punic Wars uh, after, three, after three sets of them. And, and so Carthage had become a, uh, a client co colony of, of the Roman Empire and Numidia became a client kingdom, but eventually in the first century became a Roman colony. And then the same thing happened for the kingdom of Mauritania, which is in modern day Algeria and Morocco. And they also became a client kingdom after the time of King Juba uh, in the first century. 
So by the time of, by, and well, after, basically what had happened after that was now, from that point on, right around the time that, uh, that right around the time that uh, Christianity came on the scene, um, the Roman Empire had just finished kind of absorbing these ancient North African kingdoms into becoming Roman colonies. And at that point, you started to see a whole lot more Roman culture, Roman cities being built uh, all throughout uh, North Africa and, you know, um, in Numidia, uh, Roman roads and, 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 and a lot more Latin culture and Roman administrative um, aspects being put into North Africa. And, um, but the, and, and, and a lot more Latin speaking, but the indigenous Imaziran and, um, and also uh, Punic civilizations still continue to thrive. And so by the time of Christianity, you had three major language groups and cultures that were living in North Africa that to a large degree were interdependent and, uh, and, and influenced one another, but at the same time were still distinct. And those three languages and cultures were Latin slash Roman, Punic, and Imaziran, which is again erroneously called Berber oftentimes. So the, these were the three different languages. And on this next uh, uh, slide, you can see pictures of the native indigenous Imaziran language and civilization. Um, right here you see uh, these, these, these sacrificial stela or, or, or towers. You might be used to seeing the taller ones of Egypt and Ethiopia or in Nubia even, but these smaller ones were dedications to, to uh, Punic and Imaziran gods uh, like Tanit, who was the most famous probably of Punic and, and, and Imaziran gods and goddesses, and it was associated with the moon. So if you notice the large there, large stela there has a moon disc on top of it. Uh, and these are often called madrasins. And these madrasins had a lot, uh, had, had to do with, uh, infant protection of infant, um, uh, health. And so, but you can see examples here on both of these madrasins of the native uh, Imaziran language, uh, or again, the Berber language, but the Imaziran language is written here. And actually on the right there, you see picture of Masinisa on, on some numismatic evidence or a coin of Masinisa. And also those are thought to be his bones that are from, uh, from his royal uh, madrasin or tomb. Now, you know, uh, you can see right there an image of, of Mas King Masinisa, and it is on a coin, but that kind of leads me to another point um, that I think we, is an elephant in the room that we always need to address, especially as black people, which is, are we talking about black people here? And, and this is a very controversial issue, um, but uh, as the ev physical evidence itself would show, uh, I, would, I would argue that no, that these, that people in North Africa were not black both by modern definitions of what black means or by ancient definitions, because to be sure, ancient people did have categories like black and white. And the North Africans would often talked about themselves uh, as being a distinct people from black. Now, let me be very clear, this does not mean that they were white or European, but they were what they are today. They were brown people, and they were from a North African, Imaziran, Asiatic racial group that was neither European nor Sub-Saharan African. Um, and, and so, and this is also not analogous to, you know, kind of someone like myself or other people, you know, Obama or Bob Marley who are, are multiracial, uh, a mixture of Sub-Saharan African and, and European. We're not talking about that either. We're talking about a distinct racial group uh, in North Africa that's neither European nor Sub-Saharan African. Uh, and the evidence itself shows it. In fact, the, um, these madrasins here are actually from Hippo, which is from one of the most famous theologians in North African church history, Augustine. And at that same site, there's actually mosaics present there that show North Africans that are from Hippo depicting themselves with very fair skin and straight hair 
And then next to them, they actually have a what, what was called an Ethiopian slave, which just meant black person, and we'll get more into that. Um, and so even from that mosaic and other ones like it, you can see the very clear uh, distinction, racial distinction between North Africans and Egyptians and then Sub-Saharan Africans, which were a different, they were two different racial groups. Um, and, uh, and so, but at the same time, these are still Africans. And again, they're not Europeans, but that's something that we need to clarify. Um, now, uh, as I said, though, these are still North Africans and they had their own indigenous North African culture. And we're seeing some of the few evidences of that. Um, but as Christianity, uh, and I'll make a point about this later, but as Christianity continued to grow and spread in North Africa, um, it was largely strongly connected to the Latin language and Roman culture and administrative uh, and ecclesiastical structures. And, and so we'll get into more of the implications of that. But uh, not long after you have um, mentions in scripture, even itself in Acts 2 about Libyans being present at Pentecost uh, and Simon of Cyrene, and then also his, uh, his sons who also uh, you know, went on to spread the gospel. So we already see that the beginnings of North African Christianity, places like Cyrene and Carthage and others begins in the Bible itself. And it makes sense because there's large Jewish community there like Simon himself. And just like in every other direction, Christianity originally spread along Jewish communities and then went uh, from Jewish Egyptians, Jewish Ethiopians, Jewish Persians, Jewish Indians, Jewish Romans and Greeks into Gentile populations in those same regions. Um, and so, but in North Africa, very quickly after uh, the time of the New Testament, we get some of the earliest examples of, of Christian uh, theologians and figures in history. And Probably two of the best examples of that, you know, at the turn of the third century, uh, around the year 200, is, um, uh, first of all, Tertullian, who lived in the late second and early third century, is one of the first theologians to write in the Latin language. And he was one of the first ones to use the, the term Trinity. And he wrote on a plethora of ethical and theological issues. And he was actually also associated with a particular uh, Christian group that, um, that had started in Asia Minor, but actually had some of its largest followings in North Africa. And so in some ways, you could say that this was a largely North African Christian movement known as Montanism. And many people uh, would say that Montanism, in a way, is like almost like an ancient version of Pentecostalism, because the Montanists had a strong emphasis on the Holy Spirit. It was actually, it was actually officially called the New prophecy is what they called themselves. Um, and so you know, Tertullian did really um, attach himself to a unique style of Christianity in some ways that was rooted in North Africa. Um, and, uh, and also another example of early North African Christianity is the famous martyrs Perpetua and Felicity. And Perpetua was a noble woman who many people think that she actually wrote the biography that tells the story about how her and the servant woman Felicitas were both with another group of people were persecuted and eventually thrown into the, the Carthaginian Colosseum, which is a picture there right there in the middle. And that's a dedication to them, uh, you know, to Perpetual Felicity who were martyred at that Colosseum in Carthage. But, um, but, but that's, you know, again, we, we cannot understate the significance of the fact that what is probably the first Christian text written by a woman was a North African woman, was a Carthaginian, uh, Imaziran woman, North African woman who wrote her own story. And even in it, there is all these, uh, these, these empowering examples of how she's going to her death, uh, you know, for the, for the gospel. And she also is likely connected to the Montanists or the new prophecy because she has all these amazing visions from the Lord and she goes to her death bravely. But even her father tries to stop her and visit her in jail. And he even like starts to try to physically abuse her uh, and she still resists his authority and it's a powerful example of women African women standing up uh, for the gospel and uh, and going to their death now we also need to pause and think about who is the one doing the killing right now 
uh, who are the ones that are initiating these persecutions? Well, at the turn at the turn of the third century, around 200, Septimus Severus was initiating uh, the Roman emperor was initiating strong persecutions of Christians. But it's interesting to me that we get examples in the early church of Roman emperors and Roman uh, leaders persecuting Christianity in the Roman Empire. Uh, and, and, you know, North Africa, this part was a part of the Roman Empire, was a colony. And it's interesting to me that the initiators of persecution are Roman leaders. And some of the most famous stories we see of people who resist that persecution and resist those attempts to uh, convert are actually North Africans and people from Carthage. And we'll talk later uh, in the next episode about Egypt. And so this flies in the face of the the story and the narrative that we hear in our community, oftentimes by people who are, uh, who, you know, are resistant to Christianity, that Christianity is from the white man and Christianity came from the Roman Empire and they invented Christian doctrine um, and they forced it upon Africans. When you look at North Africa in the second and third century, you get the exact opposite impression. Because number one, when we look at people like Tertullian, we see that this North African theologian in the 200s, over a century before the Roman Empire became allegedly Christianized, that there was already North African theologians like, like Tertullian who were already arguing for the Trinity and for the full lordship of Jesus Christ. So Christians, especially African Christians, already believed in the lordship of Jesus Christ long before the Roman Empire uh, decided to uh, allegedly jump on board with it. And not only that, but you have martyrs like Perpetua and Felicity who are bravely going to their death. They're dying for the gospel. So are, Christianity is not being imposed upon Africans in North Africa in the third century. But on the, on the flip side, Africans are actually, African Christians are willingly going to their death because they refuse to renounce the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. So again, this, this, uh, this, is, um, uh, this is why this history is so pertinent to know. Um, now, continuing on with North African Christianity, the issue of, of martyrdom and, uh, and suffering for the faith was another very important theme in North African Christianity. And in fact, in the later third century and in the fourth century and even into the fifth, that would continue to be a very point, a very strong point of contention and debate in the North African church. And because what had happened was you had uh, you had churches that were um, or, or you had le Christian leaders in North Africa that we're basically debating, well, if you have somebody who uh, is being like perpetual felicity uh, that, that are being martyred for their faith. Right. But a lot of times, you know, there were a lot of Christians who didn't go out like a soldier, like perpetual felicity did. But sometimes they would renounce Christ or they would, you know, uh, say that they weren't a Christian or that they, or they would choose to buy a certificate uh, in order to, you know, have to not have to sacrifice or they would sacrifice to the Roman gods. There was all different reactions, as you can imagine, just like uh, even today, there's different reactions to Christian persecution and people make different decisions. And so, but the question that came up is in the church that the church was debating in North Africa was if you have Christians who renounce Jesus in times of persecution, but then when the persecution kind of like ended or, or declined, then they wanted to come back to church and repent of what they had did and say, oh, I, you know, I didn't mean it. I was just trying to save my life. Um, the question was, you know, are they now, are they still saved? Are they a part of the church or are they now condemned? Like Jesus said, if you deny me before men, I'll deny you before the father. That was a strong debate. And, uh, and, and, and at first in the third century, it was mainly a debate between the Bishop of Carthage, who his name is Cyprian. So Cyprian was probably the next major North African theologian after the time of Tertullian. And one of the most famous texts that Cyprian wrote was one that was called on the unity of the church. And it was when he was presenting the side of the argument that was saying that, well, you know, we can forgive and we can bring back in Christians who had who had renounced Jesus to save their life and we can forgive them. 
And so, but what happened was there were some Christians who didn't agree with that and they were more strict about it and say, no, they're, they're not Christian anymore. They can't be in the church. They can't have communion. And so they were led by a person named Novation. And Novation was another, uh, uh, you know, bishop in North Africa at that time who they were arguing about this. And Cyprian, uh, even though they were arguing about the, the issue of whether or not to forgive uh, the, the people who had, who had renounced Jesus, a big part of the issue was also the authority of the church of Carthage and that was really Cyprian's one of his big deals of saying that, you know, um, the biggest issue is actually the fact that y'all are trying to start a separate church. So that was another question of like, is there going to be one church, uh, church authority in North Africa or are there multiple ones? But you can see this here when Cyprian is critiquing the Novationist, Novation and his followers, when he says these doubtless, he's talking about now the people that repented, these people doubtless, they imitate and follow who despising God's tradition, seek after strange doctrines and bring in teachings of human appointment, whom the Lord rebukes and reproves in his gospel, saying, you reject the commandment that you may keep your own tradition. This is a worse crime than that which the lapsed, and when he talks about lapsed, that's he's talking about the people who had lapsed into apostasy and then came back. But he's saying that the, pe the novationists, the people uh, who were saying that they're unforgiven, that they're, he's saying that that's an even worse crime than that which the lapsed seemed to have fallen into who nevertheless, standing as penitents for their crime, beseech God with full satisfactions. Um, so this issue continued to rage in North Africa, and it really, again, set the stage for, is there going to be one church that's in charge, or can there be multiple churches? Now, going into the 300s, into the 4th century, there it was interesting because there was like the same issue, but different people now and different names. In the fourth century, there was a person named Donatus who was making similar arguments because in the early 300s, right before Constantine's alleged conversion, the emperor Diocletian was persecuting Christians worse than any Roman emperor before him. And this was the, it's called the great persecution in the early 300s. It was the worst persecution in the history of the church, uh, in the Roman empire that is, because again, uh, in other empires, there were other things going on. But Donatus argued the same thing that Novation did almost a century before him, that if you renounce Christ, you're not, you're, not, you're not saved anymore. And the Donatists were his followers, and that was a major movement, especially in North Africa. Uh, it wasn't, you know, again, um, it wasn't only in North Africa, but uh, kind of like Montanism, most of the followers of Donatism were in North Africa. So in a way, there is a degree to which you could say that Donatism was a North African religion. Now, this gets into uh, the time period of the most famous North African Christian in the history of North African Christianity. I don't even got to tell you the brother's name because you already know Augustine. And so Augustine is one of the most influential theologians in the history of Western Christianity. Um, it's interesting, he had more of an effect on European Christianity than he actually did on African Christianity, which we'll talk about later. But Augustine lived in the late 4th and early 5th century, and he wrote many different texts like City of God, um, where he's the first Christian to make an argument for just war, and also a lot of kind of church-state relations. He also wrote his confessions that talks a lot about his own spiritual life and his conversion. Um, but he also wrote a lot against the Donatists. He, he was, that was one of his biggest enemies uh, in his whole uh, uh, career as the Bishop of Hippo, which again, Hippo, it's called Hippo Regius because it was the capital city of Numidia, even going back to the Numidian time period. And so, like Cyprian did in the 200s, Augustine in the 3 and 400s, his main argument against the Donatists was actually not that they were being so strict against these people who had rejected, uh, you know, uh, who had rejected Christ and then tried to come back. But it was, again, about church authority. His main issue, like Cyprian, was 
how dare you have a separate church? There's only one church, and it was the church of Carthage that was also in connection with the church of Rome. So you see here, this is Augustine also arguing against uh, the Donatists when he says, but if anyone who has it in his power to receive baptism within the Catholic church um, prefers from some perversity of mind to be baptized in schism. When he says baptized in schism, he's talking about being baptized by the Donatists. And he's calling the Donatists schismatics. And there's one church and it's the Catholic church, which just, it's not the same as saying Roman Catholic church like in our days, but he's just saying the universal church, which for Augustine was centered in Rome and also its extension of authority in Carthage uh, that, he, that he was a part of. Um, and actually that picture there is actually a baptismal, a Donatist baptismal, because this, this, this issue is so tense in the North African church that they had separate, the Catholics and the Donatists had separate churches, they had separate baptismals, they had separate bishops, separate everything. Um, and that's actually from a city named Timgod, which was a Roman city in what's now Algeria or in ancient Numidia. And, and that was actually one of their biggest strongholds of Donatists was in the city of Timgod. And that's actually where they had their own baptismal. Um, and so anyway, Augustine is saying that, that these Donatists have a perversity of mind to be baptized in schism. Even he afterwards bethinks himself to come to the Catholic Church because he is assured that there that sacrament will profit him, which can indeed be received but cannot profit elsewhere. Beyond all question, he is perverse and guilty of sin and the more, frag the more flagrant in proportion as it was committed willfully. For that he entertains no doubt that the sacrament of baptism is rightly received in the church. He means the Catholic Church, not the Donatist Church. And is proved by his conviction that it is there that he must look for profit even from what he has received elsewhere. And so again, you see that Augustine's main issue here is not actually uh, whether or not people are being too strict against the lapsed, but it's actually about proper church authority. So this leads into another very controversial debate in North African Christianity, which is that, you know, basically was Augustine kind of like representing the more like official Catholic church that had its North African leadership centered in Carthage, but then in turn was also officially under the Roman bishop at that time. And then was the Donatist more of like an indigenous North African Christianity? And was there like a like kind of a cultural or even racial um, uh, or ethnic element to this debate? That's a very controversial topic in early Christian studies. I just want to let you know, even PhDs in early churches do not agree on that question. And uh, I think there's a lot of elements to it. We don't have time to get into all of this today, but I will just kind of quickly come out and say that my, um, my two cents on it, and when you look at the evidence, uh, is actually that I think that there are scholars who maybe took it too far and called the Donatist movement like a, a nationalist movement, and I think that's taking it too far, and that's a modern kind of anachronistic interpolation. But I would say that uh, there is an ethnic sense to it in, in the sense that Donatism was really kind of more local to the African, African community and it was associated with North Africa and it was often called like an African movement by some of its leaders and also by Augustine himself. In some of his letters against some of the Donatist leaders, he himself is, is, is acknowledging the fact that people associate Donatism as being a more Af North African religion. So I think that, yes, it's true that there were Catholics, so to speak, and Donatists in North Africa, Catholics like Augustine, but I also do think that the evidence shows that people, even Augustine himself, associated Donatism with being kind of a more North African religion. Now, why am I bringing this up? I'm bringing this up to say this is another lesson we can learn as we're doing apologetics in today's world. Because what you have here is you have a, a theologian like Augustine 
who himself was a North African. He was an Imazirin, or he was a, uh, uh, actually, he was a Punic because he speaks about his mother being Punic, and, and he has a little bit of ability to know the Punic culture, but he was really more educated in Milan under Ambrose and Cicero, and, and his thinking and culture is a lot more Latin and Roman in terms of his style and his, his, his you know, theology and his philosophy is a lot more European or Roman. So his church structure and his theology and who he was kind of in league with in this context was more, again, the authority in Rome. And he really worked to suppress the more indigenous North African church tradition. Now, when you add that together with the fact that, as I mentioned earlier, North African Christianity with people like Tertullian and Augustine and Cyprian, they did not really write in the indigenous languages like the Imazirin or even the Punic languages. And the architecture of churches and baptismals was following the Roman style. The point I'm making is that the, the, the nature of Christianity in North Africa was extremely Romanized. And even Augustine's thought process was highly Romanized and Latinized. Um, and even the one maybe example to a degree, even though they were writing in Latin too, uh, but even in the sense of just being regionally connected to the North Africa, the one example of a maybe more indigenous North African uh, religious community like the Donatists was largely suppressed, not only by the Roman church, but even by the supporters of the Roman church in North Africa. And so the, the lesson that I think we can learn from this is that we are still dealing with this issue in modern forms today in the black church and black community where our indigenous styles of preaching, our indigenous styles of doing theology, our indigenous styles of worship and doing church are often looked down upon and disrespected by even Christians in the dominant culture saying that it's not intellectually respectable or that it's not intellectually or spiritually profound. But I think, and, and even sometimes some of us in our community, especially if we go into uh, white seminaries or white spaces or denominations, we will sometimes even imbibe that same self-hatred and think that our own indigenous black church traditions are not spiritually and theologically rich and profound, which they are. And we will sometimes imbibe that same kind of self-hatred and think that white theology, white doctrines are better. And I think that there is a degree to which some many North African Christians uh, and theologians fell prey to that. And I would say that that is one of the reasons that North African Christianity ultimately did not survive. Because what happens later, after the time of Augustine, there was a little, there was a little period where the Vandals, you know, kind of this uh, like, like kind of uh, Gothic uh, culture from Central Europe and, uh, and the Iberian Peninsula came in and conquered North Africa for a century. But then they got kicked out by Emperor Justinian in the sixth century. But then in the seventh century, that was the death blow to North African Christianity. And what happens in the 600s? We all know the rise of Islam. So Islam grows in the Arabian Peninsula and consolidates power. And then it comes over and, and conquers Egypt quickly in 642 and then into Libya. And then eventually around the turn of the 8th century, around the year 700, the city of Carthage, the ancient almost 2000 year old civilization of Carthage is destroyed by the Rashidun Caliphate in the late uh, um, uh, 7th century. And so it was very soon after that that you don't see any more evidence or any more mention of Christians in North Africa going all the, already into the 8th, 9th, 10th century. It, it, this, church, um, this church tradition that lasted for you know, almost 700 years from the 1st century, from the beginning of the church, all the way up until the 7th century and the rise of Islam, is a 700-year church history of perpetual felicity of Tertullian, of Cyprian, of Augustine that lasted for so long and then almost just quickly disappears and is um, just completely uh, covered over with Islam and, and, and it disappears. And why is that? 
um, I, would, I would present to you today, and I think that by the end of the, this series of episodes, you'll be able to understand a little bit more when we compare some of these uh, pieces of evidence to uh, like Egyptian or Ethiopian Christianity, for example, who, is, who are other ancient Christianities that do survive to the present and whose communities still have lasted centuries of European oppression and colonialism and of Islamic persecution and, and all of that kind of stuff. They still survive. And the reason why is because they are much more, they were much more connected to their own local uh, language and culture and theology and, and, and built their own indigenous tradition in a way, to a degree that the North Africans really didn't do as much. Um, and so again, that's a, uh, even though there is a sad ending to the story of North African Christianity, there's still a lesson in it for us. Uh, I think as Christians of all uh, cultures, but especially as black Christians today, of the importance of why it, is, uh, why it is so important in evangelism and in theology and in ministry to really own your own culture, your own language, your own style, and to really express worship and theology in your own ways rather than trying to uh, just kind of impose or bring in something that else seems to be better. Um, but the last thing I will end with, that is another name that we need to know um, and another uh, unspoken name that needs to be more known is the name of Queen Kahina. So Queen Kahina was the queen of Numidia um, and who worked again under as a, you know, as a Roman colonia in the seventh century. And she was a Christian queen like most at that time in the 600s, most North Africans were Christians. And she actually successfully fought off the Muslims initially. So as I said, even though the Muslims conquered North Africa and destroyed Carthage and then rebuilt the city of Tunis as a as an Islamic kind of center in, the, in North Africa and on the continent, initially, though, Queen Kahina was successful in repelling and pushing back the Islamic forces back. She pushed them all the way from Carthage into Libya and won an initial victory. So again, even though they initially came back and defeated uh, her army and defeated Carthage, um, it's just such a powerful uh, image to think about that when, when Muslims came into North Africa they, and they came in conquering with the sword, what they encountered in Egypt, which we'll talk about next, and also in North Africa, they encountered a bunch of African Christians who were even willing to fight and defend their homeland and, uh, and to m maintain it being a Christian kingdom. And it was led by a North African Christian queen named Queen Kahina. And so this, again, just flies in the face uh, also, for example, of anybody in our community that is going to tell us something like, well, you know, Islam is the real religion of the black man. We're Moors and we're we all came from, uh, you know, from the Moors. And and that's our ancestor. We were all Muslim. And then Christianity was imposed on us later. Like, nah, bro, look at the record. Actually, it was the is the complete flip. If you really want to say we're Moors and you really want to talk about Moors and North Africans, which also, more is a, is a, is a, an offensive term as well, like Berber. If you want to talk about Imazirans, if you want to say that we're all from like Imaziran land, okay. Well, let's go back to Imaziran land. Let's go back to Numidia and 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 uh, and Carthage and and Mauritania. Let's see what was going on there even before Islam even existed. And what we will find is that the so-called Moors or the so or the Imaziran, like Augustine, Tertullian, Perpetuum Felicity, and Queen Kahina, were Christians. And they were freely Christians. And on the flip side, when Islam comes in at the end of the 600s, it comes in by the sword and it comes in conquering and enforcing. So Islam is actually what became in by force in Africa, whereas Christianity came in freely by some of the earliest apostles and early people like Simon Cyrene. There's no imposition. And in fact, on the flip side, they actually died for the faith, like Perpetuum Felicity, against the Europeans, the Romans, who were trying to impose paganism and, and polytheism. The last thing I'm going to mention to, to illustrate uh, the, the literal Christian foundations of North Africa is the fact that on the, uh, right here next to Queen Kahina, you see an image of the, the mosque of Karawan. 
And Kirwan is one of the most uh, sacred sites for Islam in the continent of Africa. This is the oldest mosque on the continent of Africa. Um, and and this, is, this was built soon after the conquest of, of Tunis, um, or the building of Tunis and the conquest of Carthage. But um, there's a lot of, they built it so quick that they used a lot of the same material and bricks that they just destroyed from Roman temples and from Christian churches. So if you look at that central image, that is actually a pillar inside the mosque of Karawan, the oldest mosque in Africa. But notice what's on that pillar. It's a cross because they took, they took material to make their mosque out of churches. And so this is a literal visual reminder that, that even that after Islam came into Africa and enforced itself and conquered the indigenous Imaziran people, that they built <laughs> they built their literal mosque on Christian foundation. Islam was built in Africa on literal Christian foundations. You have a cross in the oldest mosque on the continent of Africa. So just that image speaks to us about the fact that, yes, Islam has a very long track record among uh, African peoples. But more often than not, it entered through conquest. And that continues on into West Africa and Central African history as well. Whereas, um, but this image also shows us a deeper truth, which is that even before Islam even existed, that the cross of Jesus Christ was being symbolized to depict the faith of North African people in the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ that had freely come in in the first century and had freely thrived um, and shaped North African civilization and language and literature for almost a millennium. So thank you very much for your time uh, in this podcast, in this first episode of the Bisrock podcast. And I would love to continue to chop it up with you. Hit me up if you have any questions about North African Christianity uh, or just want to continue any of these uh, topics in general. Uh, and we will see you at the next episode of the Bisrock podcast. God bless you. Thank you for listening to the Bizrock Podcast with Dr. Vince Bontu, sponsored by the Jew 3 Project. Remember to rate and subscribe wherever you stream your favorite podcast. And remember, if you want to help support the mission and vision of the Jew 3 Project to help black Christians know what they believe and why through this podcast or other avenues, you could do so by going to Jew3Project.org and hitting that donate tab to give by mail or to give online. Every gift helps equipped, and we're so thankful for your support and your prayers. We appreciate you. And until next time, grace and peace and God bless.